You know, sometimes I wish the music ministry wasn't as good as it is here. I uh, this preached the first service and uh, found myself belting out the music and uh, <laughs> invites me to sing. And I, I love to sing. And, and then I find out that I'm, my voice isn't the same as it used to be. So I marked 21 years in the ministry uh, this last June. And, and I, when my first pastor at six years, I, I, I preached three to four times on a Sunday with no problem. And now, now that I'm uh, getting a little bit more advanced, I guess, I don't know, my voice just doesn't hardly hold out. And, and Jay, you, got, you, you just ruined it for me. Because I, I want to sing. And, and Jenny wasn't sitting next to me during the first service, and she couldn't uh, nudge me to remind me to... T- 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 Tamp it down a little bit, Kevin. But uh, anyway, I did, I did well. But thank you so much. What a blessed, what a blessed ministry. By the way, uh, is Jimmy Peck in here? I, I was walking out the gate, out the door, pardon me, in the door as he was walking down the stairs on the backside. And he looked at me, he's like, Chaplain, you know you're preaching today? I'm like, yeah, yeah. I know. But I had such an opportunity and I totally missed it because I could have just, uh, you know, I could have played that off a little bit too. Anyway, uh, turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4 and verse number 17. And please stand for the reading of God's word. Ephesians chapter 4, verse number 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their harshness, the hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way that you have learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out from your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the great grace and forgiveness that you've given to us through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. We thank you for this opportunity to come into this place and to take a few moments to hear a word from you. And I pray that that's exactly what happens. I pray that this preacher would get out of your way and that your word would do its work and that we would be conformed to the image of your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name I pray these things. Amen. You may be seated. James chapter 1 and verse number 25 reads, But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. 1,500 people have died in Yosemite National Park since they started recording such things in 1851. That means about 16 people a year who go into the park 
don't come out alive. As an aside, 81% of all deaths in all national parks across the nation are males. I'm not sure if that figure cause, is it, you know, shows any causal link between stupid machismo and morbidity, but it seems as if a peer-reviewed study may be less than complimentary. Here's a, here's a typical news story from 2008 highlighting one such death. Quote, a 12-year-old Boy Scout died after he fell off a cliff in Yosemite National Park in February as he hiked ahead of his Modesto, California troop. A spokesman for the park says that the scout had ventured off the trail above Columbia Rock. In another story, this one from 2011, when one witness got to the top of Mist Trail, and by the way, that's the trail to the top of Mist Trail right there. When one witness got to the top of Mist Trail above Vernal Falls, he saw people on the river side of the barricade. A barricade, by the way, which is replete with warning signs not to cross the barrier under any circumstance. A man was posing with a girl for a photograph near the waterfall, and the girl was not enjoying being there. Folk on the safe side of the barricade were shouting at the three to come back to safety. Then another pair, who were with that group, jumped the barrier and went out to a rock in the middle of the river to pose for photographs. One of the women from the second group that went started to slip. The man with her reached to help, and they both fell in. A third reached for the pair, and she also was swept into the water only 25 feet from the edge. The drop is 317 feet. Everyone was screaming, said one witness. People were praying. And what this witness said is, what I will take away with me forever is the look on that grown man's face as he was floating down that river knowing that he was going to die and that nobody could help him. According to the Yosemite National Park website, and I quote, more people die on this trail than anywhere else in Yosemite. It's not the waterfalls or the cliffs that are the culprits. It's the current. The river here apparently looks much less dangerous than it actually is. Typically, a, hike, a hiker steps into the water and finds the current too strong to overcome, then gets swept away to a regrettable death somewhere downstream. Close quote. The park, park's website ends with an underwhelming shape, and here it is. So please be careful when you're near the river. Here's a short clip of Robert and me, my, my oldest son, standing at the top of Vernal Falls. And I want you to notice, even though we're behind the substantial railing, I'm still holding on very tightly to my boy's backpack. <laughs> If you look down, it's really creepy. That's what he said, if you couldn't catch it. And he's right. It, it is a little creepy looking down. Uh, we're, we were safe where we were standing. Yet five feet to the left of where we were was certain death. The very spot where the three I just referenced in that story were swept to their deaths in 2011. Listen, faith is not a license to ignore risk. Faith is not a card that you play to get out of the consequences of poor decision-making. Faith is not an excuse for poor planning. One can't shake their fist at heaven while falling to their death and say, God, I trusted in you and you let me down. When that one has walked past warning sign after warning sign, jumped over fence after fence, and fell off the cliffs of insanity, 
into the rocks of destruction. Faith in God is not your past to ignore the mental faculty that God has granted you. Faith is not a reason to fail to seek or to ignore wise counsel. Oh, our enemy, he's a crafty one. The father of lies would have you believe a spiritual jargon that would encourage you to cast off restraint and live free. He would twist the meaning of grace beyond any reasonable form of biblical recognition to that which would grant permission to promiscuity or drunkenness or alternative lifestyles, the sorts of things which are unquestionably forbidden by multiple commands in God's revelation through the Scriptures and even in God's revelation to all mankind through nature. American culture is probably best described now as post-Christian. And I'm afraid that the American church has been affected by that culture more than we would like to admit. Is it possible that some children of God have never heard or internalized the Apostle Paul's words in Romans chapter 6, verse number 1? What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. Or if you prefer, no way. Or as the old King James had it, God forbid. How can we who have died to sin continue to live in it? That's a question. Can we still name the name of Christ as our Redeemer in good conscience while we choose to say, I know it's forbidden. I I know that God says no, but I like it and He'll forgive me. Listen, that's not confidence in God's grace. That's utter foolishness. That's what King David called in Psalm 19.13 a presumptuous sin. The the sort of sin that would exert, quote, dominion over the offender and would cause him to be guilty of, quote, the great transgression. Your willful sin places you on slippery rocks above a current that will destroy you. In Ephesians chapter 4, the passage we read at the beginning of the sermon, Paul wrote to new believers, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness. You must no longer walk as the Gentiles, read non-Christians, do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their hearts. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way that you have learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs to the former manner of life and this corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Folk, there are always rules, always have been, always will be. It is not legalism to admit that God has a standard for your life to which He holds you accountable. There's just... Here's just one string of New Testament rules as we continue through this passage. Paul writes in Ephesians 4.25, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. The rule is, be honest. 
In verse 26 through 27, he recognizes the presence of anger within us as a reality that can't and shouldn't be ignored, but rather channeled and controlled. The text says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. The rule is, if you become angry, don't let your anger lead to sin. And that, friends, is a rough one. I've had a lot of experience with that one lately. He then enjoins the the thief to put away his thievery. Let the thief no longer steal, says the text, but let him rather labor doing honest work with his hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. The rule? Don't steal. He then moves on to recognize the power of words to wound or to heal and commands Christians to use their tongues for life-giving purposes. In verse 30, he stresses the importance of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer by reminding him that by disobeying God's commands, he or she grieves or saddens God's Holy Spirit to his core. He commands us not to make God sad. Parents, we get this, don't we? You know exactly what I'm talking about. We understand how it hurts when a child's actions, actions against which they have been clearly warned, are commenced to the child's own hurt. When the child touches the stove, perhaps our hand burns a bit more than theirs. Oh, oh, how it aches to see preventable pain. To have to stand behind a proverbial railing and watch as one of your own children hops from rock to rock, so sure that they won't slip into the current. Well, our own heart is breaking to see the nearly certain end that will come from such foolishness. Knowing that their wills are beyond our reach. And so we stand behind the rail and weep and pray. God's just like that too. He hurts when we hurt ourselves. Most especially because He's right there with us, reminding us of the folly of our choice. When we choose the pleasures of sin for a season over the freedom of the beauty of His holiness, He weeps for us and eventually with us. Children of God, grieve not the Holy Spirit of God. It's a command. It's a rule. In verse number 31 and 32, he takes on interpersonal relationship skills. He writes, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. In essence, he commands, get along with each other. Chapter 5, verse 1, we're ordered to imitate God and to walk in love. In verses 2 through 14 of chapter 5, we're commanded to refrain from talking about performing, joking about, or practicing any form of sexual immorality. And he reminds readers that intimacy between a man and a woman is to be reserved for marriage alone. Then he continues with rules about time management, general foolhardy behavior, Drunkenness, don't do it. Family order and child rearing and ethics in the workplace. All this before he orders believers to stand firm against Satan's strategies. 
So why all the rules, Paul? Nearly every epistle or letter of the New Testament follows a a pattern very similar to the one that we see in Ephesians. Romans, Colossians, and Philippians come to mind. Hebrews also follows a, a very similar pattern. The letters begin with foundational thoughts or theology and then progress to rules or ethics. And this progression is critical to note. Listen, the Bible isn't a book of rules, but it is a book that contains a lot of rules. However, the rules are preceded for the reason for the rules. In other words, God answers the why before He gives us the rules that often cause us to ask, why? And the why, at least in the New Testament, often looks very, very similar as you look at those different books. I'm going to summarize kind of the why of the New Testament epistles when it comes to the rules or the ethics that are given. And here it is. Here's Kevin's version. Before you came to know Christ, your life was characterized by self-righteousness, debauchery, or a mixture of the two. But then you met Jesus. If your life had been characterized by self-righteousness, you realized that your best efforts at reaching the impossible standard of holiness left you short of the mark. You realized that you were a sinner, asked for forgiveness, and received His grace. If your life was characterized by debauchery, you already knew that you were a sinner and you received His grace. Either way, you received His grace. He chose, God chose to lavish His his love on you in spite of your sin. Amazing grace, amazing love. And you've just got to be filled with gratitude for the irreconcilable choice of God to shower His favor on you. You can't be anything but full of gratitude. But it's so easy to forget about His grace, isn't it? Don't forget your life purchased with the blood of Jesus Christ should mirror His grace to the world around you in summation. Listen, it just makes sense, doesn't it? We were slaves of sin before our salvation. Now we are the willing servants of Christ. The servant of Christ serves Christ. Not the will of the adversary. So you can begin to see why the Apostle John would write such things as he did in 1 John. John we'll start first at 2, 4, chapter 2, verse 4, or 1, 5, rather. If we say that we have fellowship with God while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So we'd also understand why he would write in chapter 2, verse 4, whoever says, I know him but does not keep His commandments? He's a liar. And the truth is not in him. We further understand why he'd write in verse 10 of the same chapter, whoever says he is in the light but hates his brother is still in darkness. So of course then we understand in verse 15 of the same chapter, do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride and possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away with all all of its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. And yet some Christians still choose to glide glibly through life, thinking that they can make their choices and live their life without regard to the rules that God has given under the guise of words like Christian liberty or freedom or, worst of all, grace. 
And when they do so, they walk straight into the lion's jaws without the shield of faith, the sword of the Spirit, the breastplate of righteousness, or the belt of truth. They're shoeless and naked, and then they'll complain as the last bit of spiritual strength spills from their veins that the helmet of salvation did them no good. What utter nonsense. Listen, either you're a soldier or you're not. Suit up or ship out. Get on the fighting line and admit that you're really not that much into Jesus. John records Christ's words of the church of Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3, verse number 15 through 16. He says, I know your works. You're neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either hot or cold. So because you were lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Listen, Starbucks serves decent coffee. That's not good. It's just decent. It's consistent. I know exactly what I'm going to get when I go there. I love hot coffee. I, if it's prepared properly, I like cold coffee. But I have yet to walk into any coffee establishment and look at the barista and say, do you have any slightly stale, warmish stuff behind the counter there for sale? Listen, hot water has value. Cold water has value. The stuff between? Blah! Listen, Christ wants you. He wants all of you. Not half of you, not one-seventh of you. Do you, know what I, do you know what I think it really boils down to? Most of us just don't like rules. We're like kids wanting to visit a playground. We hunger for the playground. We want to go to the playground. We've got to go to the playground. We can't live if we don't go to the playground. Then we get to the playground, we play in it for a few minutes, but then we see that there's a fence that's containing us. We see the fence is a barrier to our fun. The grass is greener, so we think on the other side of the fence. So we question the justice of the workers who put the fence around us. We get angry at the fence maker and then the city ordinances. We're mad at our parents for placing us inside of the fence. We're convinced that if we could just get over the fence, we'll be just fine. We cannot conceive that the fence might be our best friend. Yes, we begin to feel a restriction instead of loving the freedom and liberty that we have to play to our hearts content within the protective boundaries. Boundaries that protect us from the sorts of evils of which children shouldn't even have to be aware. But oh, to some, don't I ever sound like a Pharisee today? Listen, if you're hearing Phariseeism or legalism in my words, let me remind you of who Jesus was. Some would like to make neat columns and put Jesus on, the, uh, on this column of openness, friendliness, engagement, forgiveness, love, hopefulness, and inclusivity. And they'd like to put the Pharisees, by which they often mean, anyone who disagrees with me, uh, they'd like to put them in another column that's really closed-minded, disengaged, legalistic, judgmental, negative, and exclusive. And while it's absolutely true that Jesus is open and engaging and forgiving and loving and hopeful and inclusive, it simply won't do for us to forget that He was a man who also cleansed out the temple with a whip, overturning the money changers' tables. We can't ignore the tender, loving words that he spoke to Peter, recorded in Matthew chapter 16, verse number 23, after Peter verbally rebuked Jesus. Do you remember the, the kind words that Jesus spoke to Peter? If you don't, here they are. Get behind me, Satan! You're a hindrance to me! For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Listen, Jesus was, and still is, the rock of truth against which all folly, foolishness, and sin crashed. 
Jesus welcomed sinners. He ate with them. He loved them. He bonded with them as a visible reminder of the holy, but He did so with redemption in mind. Not with the goal of sanctioning sinful behavior. His presence chased foolishness and sinful behaviors away. He welcomed the sinner, but not the sin. And Jesus Christ, the Lord of all creation, can't become much more exclusive than He was and is when He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by Me. He's inclusive in that He makes His grace available to all, but exclusive in that He declares Himself to be the singular hope of the world. So it does no good to try to diminish the moral claims of Christ and separate them from the character of Christ. Christ is good. He is loving. He is patient. He is kind and forgiving as He holds the unflinching standard of righteousness upon which some, through their insistence in bypassing that standard, fall to their doom and destruction. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Listen, this promise was for the self-righteous Pharisee as much as for those the Pharisees would call sinners. For indeed, Jesus was speaking to a Pharisee when He said those words. For the Pharisee, a sinner was untouchable. And frankly, it wasn't all that bad that the Pharisees didn't run with the crowd and participate, participate in their riotous behavior. The real sin of the Pharisees was in the refusal to understand that their self-righteousness was just as abhorrent to God as the vilest behavior of the gutter dweller. Christ spoke harshly against the sort of person who dared to stand up and say the sort of thing that Luke records in Chapter 18, verse number 11. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this fellow who works for the IRS. Yes, Christ doesn't have much room for the self-righteous sort, the ones He called whitewashed graves, pretty on the outside but full of dead men's bones. No, we don't want Phariseeism. Nor do we want legalism. Now there's a word that's been abused. What exactly is legalism? Is it legalism if one of you chooses to limit the exercise of your liberty? Let's think about the playground again. We're children with full freedom to play inside of God's fences. What if one child thinks that the swing set is for swinging and refuses to walk on the top of the crossbar? We're inside the fence. We're all there. You have perfect liberty to play with all of the playground equipment, and you've been given no rules about the specific uses of the items within the fence. I tell you, I'd be the one swinging on the swing set. I remember my elementary school friend, Drew. He had an amazing sense of balance. I've often wondered, after he graduated, if he went off to the circus, because he'd have been a good one. He could walk the 40-foot stretch of crossbar above the swing set that we had on my, my school playground. Everybody knew that he could do it. Teachers yawned when they saw him climbing up the pole to get ready to go. Sure, that wouldn't happen today, but sure did on my playground. He was good. I was fine swinging. He was fine on the high wire. Now, it would have been absolute foolishness for me to climb up there. I was fairly clumsy. I would have fallen, I promise. Not Drew. 
Within the boundaries of the playground, each of us children drew our own little fences around our actions. We limited our behavior. Nobody was good as Drew. I never saw him fall. I doubt that he, that was true. I bet he did fall, but I never saw him. He could walk across the top of the monkey bars like nobody's business. I mean, he almost, almost had a run. Me, I only ever swing from him. Couldn't do it. I have to admit, there were times that I absolutely wished, as a kid, looking at Drew, that I had the dexterity to do what he did. I wanted to walk on the monkey bars. I wanted to cross the length of the, 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 the beam that held the swing set. But my inability to perform such feats of dexterity and balance would have been no excuse for me to, to stand in his way as his peer and tell him, don't do it. It was within the playground. It was consistent with his abilities. It brought no harm to others, and it was permitted by the rules of proper authority. To bar his way to a permissible activity, even if I thought it was unwise or foolish, would be unjust. And to consider myself as better than him because I refused to take what would have been for myself an unreasonable risk would be nothing short of self-righteous priggishness. Drew was my friend. Both of us agreed that falling down and hurting ourselves was a bad idea. But his abilities and my abilities were wildly different. And I had no right to project my personal boundaries onto his sphere of proper freedom. So what makes a legalist? Listen, you are a legalist when you begin drawing boundaries for other believers if you aren't their parents. Hear that piece. If you aren't their parents. When you begin drawing boundaries for other believers that are tighter than the boundaries that God has given them. You're even worse if you do so and you don't even try to practice the rules you place on others or only selectively enforce them when convenient to yourself. Listen to Jesus, Luke chapter 11, verse number 46. Woe to you lawyers also. Don't don't worry, if you're a lawyer in here, they're not talking about you. Lawyers then were the people whose job it was to interpret God's laws from what we call the Old Testament, basically seminary professors. For you load people with burdens hard to bear. And you yourselves don't touch the burdens with one of your fingers. So what we don't need as adult believers is to have someone standing over our shoulder on this battlefield-like playground that is life, providing unwanted or unasked for evaluations on our actions and condoning or condemning choices or behaviors that are within the boundaries of God that He has marked or codifying things as God's standard when they're actually cultural traditions or things about which God is silent. What we do need, and hear me clearly, what we do need is to take good stock of our surroundings, survey our spiritual resources and stamina, develop self-awareness of our weakness, and build appropriate personal boundaries that will serve to protect us from falling from our spiritual foundations right into Satan's snares. Listen, if you struggle with drunkenness, perhaps you should draw some personal boundaries that might include not going to a bar to get a soda. That's not legalism, that's wisdom. If you struggle with pornography, perhaps you should willingly invite your spouse to monitor your computer use. That's not legalism, that's wisdom. Whatever, whatever your struggle is, humble yourself 
Because humility is at the core of Christianity and fall on your knees and ask God to give you the strength to overcome your weaknesses and build whatever protective fences you must, but never make the mistake of imposing your need for a tighter boundary on that of your brother or sister who doesn't need that same extra level of protection when they're clearly standing on the inside of the fence that God has placed in His clear standards as revealed in His holy inspired word. So, there was this massive drama in the early history of Israel. And you can read about it in Exodus chapter 20. God showed up. Pretty exciting. Comes down in a visible form on a mountain called Sinai. And He gives His people a law. A set of rules. Ten of them on a couple of stone tablets. Number one. Don't worship other gods. Number two, don't make or worship idols. Three, don't take the Lord's name in vain. Four, observe a day of rest. Five, honor your father and mother. Six, do no murder. Seven, do not commit adultery. Eight, do not steal. Nine, don't bear false witness against your neighbor. And ten, don't covet what doesn't belong to you. It's a tall order. If that list wasn't enough... He proceeds to give, through Moses, 603 additional commands on behavior. Moses writes all these commands down in a book, which becomes known as the Torah. These commands are part of the first five books of what we know as the Old Testament. And so you read about that drama first in Exodus chapter 20. But the whole drama is repeated again in another book, in Deuteronomy. You see, one generation had passed away and the next generation has come. They're just about to enter the promised land. And so he repeats the story in a new book. Listen to the words of Deuteronomy chapter 6. Now this is the commandments, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it. That you may fear the Lord your God, you and your sons and your sons' sons, by keeping all of His statutes and His commandments which I command you all the day of your life, so that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hands. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Now, folk, it sure sounds as if God, through Moses, encouraged the people to embrace the rules to make them a ubiquitous part of daily life, to pass an appreciation of those rules on to their children, not to stifle them, but to help them to say with David, oh, how I love thy Lord is my meditation day and night. It's no use saying that we can disregard the law because we're under grace. Jesus repeated nine of the ten rules, leaving only out the one about the Sabbath. And the New Testament is full of rules. The rules weren't meant to go away. That was not Paul's point in Galatians. But that's another sermon. Why the rules? The rules are good. They're there for our protection. Our loving Father doesn't want us to burn our hands on the stove. 
He doesn't want us to get swept away by the current that we think that we can handle, that He, in His eternal wisdom, knows that we can't. He doesn't want us to endure the pain of broken marriages and fatherless or motherless homes. He doesn't want us to endure the pain of friendships severed by dishonesty. He doesn't want us to suffer from wholly preventable problems. The problems that we're prone to blame on the devil instead of ourselves where the blame wholly lies. Yes, there are fences. Yet those fences lead us to the playground of God's perfect, smiling grace. Yes, there are fences, but there are fences because there are cliffs. Thank God for fences. Let us pray. Father, we do thank you that you are a good God, a loving Father, who has given us a beautiful playground in which to exercise our gratitude to Him for the great grace that is given to us through Jesus Christ.